Oh, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me, if you haven't already done so, to the book of Zephaniah. If you're using the the blue pew Bible and seat back in front of you, you can find that on page 788. And uh, if if you're not using one of those and you need some help navigating in your own Bible, that's four books to the left of Matthew. You can find it sandwiched between Habakkuk and Haggai. Last week we began a short series while Pastor Nick is away through this uh, often neglected book. And as I mentioned, uh, Zephaniah provides a, a beautifully compact journey for us to experience uh, the range of God's character. As we move in the beginning of the book from his, his burning anger against sin we move from that toward the end of the book, we see His loving kindness and His patience towards sinners. And we see God's glory in the book in a multifaceted way, and it brings us face to face with our Redeemer. And so, this week we will be considering, uh, we're still early in the book, Zephaniah 1, 7 through chapter 2, verse 3. And it will be in a sermon that I've entitled, Day of Wrath. Again, a very chipper and upbeat uh, theme for our consideration. Uh, and the, the key words for our worshipers in training are day, wrath, and righteousness. The Six-Day War was a brief war that took place on June 5th through the 10th between Arab and Israeli forces in 1967. Several weeks before the war officially began, Egypt issued a postage stamp showing uh, Gamal uh, Abdel Nasser Hussein, the nation's second president, showed him with a map of Israel in flames at his right hand. This was meant to be a threat against Israel, depicting the, the utter destruction intended against them by Arab forces. Before fighting started, the radio in Cairo announced, Our people have been waiting 20 years for this battle. Now they will teach Israel the lesson of death. Nasser went on the radio himself to say that any war with Israel will be total, and the objective will be to destroy Israel. An Assyrian army commander predicted Israel's destruction in just four days. Well, that war did not go as Egypt had intended. Arab forces were handily defeated in less than a week, and and for the first time in 1967, for nearly 2,000 years, for the first time in 2,600 years, actually, Jerusalem came under Israeli control. If you're doing the math in your head, that would take you back to the turn of the 6th century B.C., when Babylon took control of Jerusalem just before the revolt that led to Jerusalem and the temple's destruction in 586 B.C., the very um, destruction prophesied in, uh, in this book that we're looking at together in Zephaniah. So the effects of this judgment that we're considering were devastating, displacing Judah from control over Jerusalem for over two and a half millennia. And so as we consider our text this morning, I want to do so under three headings. First, in verses 7 through 16, we will see a a description of the coming judgment prophesied against Judah. And secondly, in verses 17 through 18, we'll see a description of God's judgment 
not just against Judah, but all of mankind. And in uh, third, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, we'll look at hope still offered in the midst of this judgment. So first, let's consider the description of Judah's judgment. And, and here we will see three things about this description. We will note the immediacy of the judgment. We will note those uh, who were to be punished. And third, we will see the destruction wrought by the judgment. So first, when should this judgment be expected? We see in verses 7 and 14 that the day of the Lord would come quickly. We read, Be silent before the Lord. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests. And He says over in verse 14 that the great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. Zephaniah is telling his audience that the day of the Lord is at hand. And this was an important word for Judah. They had been living really as though judgment would never come. But they were very wrong. Zephaniah tells them plainly, destruction is imminent. Whatever time they they thought that they had to perhaps plan and prepare and to get ready for what may come, they were wrong. There's an immediacy to the judgment that, that they needed to understand. And so, the primary fulfillment of this prophecy comes really just 40 years after it was made in their very lifetimes. There's a a story uh, to illustrate uh, this point, there's a, there's a story of a Scottish lawyer who was a very wicked man. And he once hired a horse. And even though uh, it was probably an accident, perhaps it was neglect, he ended up killing the animal in the job. And so the owner of the animal insisted on being paid for its value plus some compensation for the loss of its use. Well... The lawyer acknowledged his fault, and he said he was perfectly willing to pay. But um, he said at the moment he was currently, he was short on cash, and so he asked if the man would accept an IOU. Certainly, he said. The lawyer further said that he he needed a long long date, and so the, the creditor said, you can set your own time. Well, the wicked man drew the note, making it payable at the day of judgment. Eventually, the creditor took him to court, and there in defense, the lawyer asked the judge to look at the note. The judge did so and replied, the note is perfectly good, sir, and as this is a day of judgment, I decree you pay it tomorrow. What the Scottish lawyer learned in this story is that judgment often comes much sooner than expected. This is a lesson that Judah needed to heed. This is a lesson that we need to heed. We need to be careful in our own day not to assume that we will be granted tomorrow. And so the Lord tells Judah through his prophet Zephaniah that judgment is coming quickly. He tells them also, not just that it's coming quickly, but but who he would judge in their midst and and what practices uh, they had committed that had provoked him to such anger. We read in verses 8 and 9, And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. 
We saw last week in verses 4-6 to that, that God is stretching out His hand against Judah because of their religious hypocrisy and idolatry. And in these verses here, the Lord expands on this judgment. He says that He will judge the, the nation's civil magistrates and those who conform to the, the pagan and wicked, wicked practices of the nations surrounding Jerusalem. Now, admittedly, these are... To, to our ears, some, some odd descriptions that we may not know exactly what's so wrong with wearing foreign attire or what it even means to leap over thresholds. So what's going on? Well, I think Zephaniah is describing those who, through uh, the influence of other nations, they fell into various forms of idolatry and wicked practices, particularly those in the public life of, of Judah. We see first the officials and the king's sons. Um, we noted last week when we considered even uh, Zephaniah's heritage that uh, it was the kings of Judah and those in power in Israel who led the nation to worship other gods. And while uh, Josiah, the king at the time, when Zephaniah is prophesying, while, while he led the nation in reform, um, those before him and, and his sons after him, they led the nation in decline, which ultimately ended in their, their exile. So God is bringing judgment against the nation's leaders. We see also, um, you know, in their midst, those who, it says, array themselves in foreign attire. The Israelites were commanded to keep themselves distinct from the surrounding pagan nations in terms of their worship, in terms of their, their food, their morals, even their dress, even what they wore. An example particularly germane to this issue is found in Leviticus 19, 19. And there the Israelites are commanded not to wear clothing mixed of two different fabrics. While many explanations have been given for this, I think it's most likely that the commands are given in order to keep Israel from engaging in the pagan practices of the Canaanites. Because the Canaanites, they thought that they could influence their gods through symbolic actions. So they would mix uh, animal breeds, they would mix seeds, uh, different materials, fabrics, clothing, and they would do this in order to, in their minds, they would produce uh, magical offspring. They would, they would, it would influence the gods to give them an agricultural bounty. And so even in their dress, Judah's commanded to be distinct from the surrounding nations, but in Zephaniah we see that, that they weren't content to do that. They weren't living distinct and separate lives from the pagan nations around them, but they were being intoxicated with their customs and their dress. Israel was being led astray by the customs, attire, and religious practices of the pagan nations. And they were being led into idolatry, and God said He would judge them for it. The impending doom of those who leap over thresholds, however, is a bit more puzzling. We see that in verse 9. Honestly, I'm not, I'm not aware of, of just a crystal clear answer that this is exactly, this has to be what Zephaniah is referencing. I think uh, there's one plausible explanation that I, that I like, that I appreciate, um, is that it's a reference to superstitious practices of the Philistines. In 1 Samuel 5, the Philistines, uh, if you're not familiar with the story, they capture the Ark of God, and uh, they bring it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. 
And there they put the ark in the house of one of their deities, Dagon, and they set it up beside the, the idol of Dagon. And the next day, they, they, they go and they see that Dagon's laying face down before the ark. And so they set him uh, back into place, but then the day after that, when they wake up, they go back to uh, the house of Dagon and, and they see that not only has he, has he fallen face down before the ark again, but his head and his hands were lying cut off on the, th- the threshold, the entrance into the house. And this, we are told, is why the priests of Dagon and all who entered his house would not tread on the threshold. They would hop over it. Now, this may not be what Zephaniah is referencing in our passage, but I think it's, it's at least plausible. And, and even beyond that, there, there seems to be clearly some sort of connection with a, a spiritualistic or superstitious pagan practice coming to them from other nations. And so we see not only is God punishing the, 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 fish, the, the civil leaders in the nation, He's punishing those who wear foreign attire and practice um, these pagan rituals or following the superstitious beliefs of the nations around them, but we see um, that God's going to punish those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. We're told in countless places in Scripture, in the Old Testament, uh, especially that God is just. He cares for the orphan and the widow. He hates oppression and the oppressor. One such place is Deuteronomy 10.18. There we're told that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And so it should come as no surprise that God would be opposed to those whose religion is full of violence and deceit. Well, in verse 12, we see even a fifth group that God will punish. He says He's going to punish the complacent men in Jerusalem. He says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will He do ill. He will punish those who see nothing either good or bad coming from the Lord. Here, God moves from uh, punishing what you might call kind of overt sins of commission. Sins where the offenders are actively disobeying God's commands and they're intermingling in terms of religious cult practices of the, the foreign nations. But he turns from that and then in verse 12 he says that he's going to punish sins of omission where they're not necessarily doing anything, but they're just living in total apathy, thinking that God will never act. God says He's bringing His just wrath against religious hypocrites, religious leaders, and those who adhere to pagan and superstitious practices of the Canaanites, and those who, though they may never utter a word with their lips, they think in their minds that God will never come to judge. And so we see the immediacy of this judgment and the causes of it. Let's consider the devastation of this judgment in verses 10 through 16. A third descriptor of this day concerns its atrocity. We read in verse 10, On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. 
All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will He do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. And so on that day, this day of judgment for Judah, we read that there will be cries heard throughout all the city. The fish gate, the second quarter in the hills are likely the descriptions of the, the center of cultural activity in Jerusalem. These are the centers of protection, trade, and, and industry. God says they would all be devastated. Not only will the judgment against the religious hypocrites and perverse rulers come, but judgment against the very center of the nation's commercial life. Commercial life would be destroyed. At the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 28, uh, God sets before Israel uh, blessings and, and curses. Blessings for obedience to the covenant. Curses for disobedience to the covenant. And in 2830... Um, we see one of those particular curses that come would come upon Israel were they to break the covenant obligations that God had placed upon her. And in verse 30 we read that He says, You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. This is exactly what I just read in Zephaniah 1.13. The curses for disobedience in the Old Testament uh, were coming to fruition upon Judah because of their lawlessness. In verse 15, we see that, that this day is a day of wrath. That's how the Lord broadly characterizes it. It says, it's a day of anger, rage, and fury. And He gives some parallel descriptions to capture these various elements of how terrible and wrathful this day would be. He says it will be emotionally distressing and anguishing. Physically, it will be a day of ruin and devastation. It's a day of darkness and gloom, of clouds and thick darkness. And it would provoke those suffering under it to utter terror. He says it will be, be a day of war with trumpet blast and battle cry. Fortified cities and lofty battlements will not stand against this awful day. He says in verse 14 that the sound of the day is bitter and the mighty man cries aloud in agony. It's a day full of shrieking and crying. Shouts of agony and pain pierce the ear on the day that God executes His judgment on those who stand opposed to Him. Well, this is, the, this is the description of this judgment coming against Judah. In our second point, we see that in verses 17-18, the Lord turns not just to bringing distress on Judah, but 
Judgment's coming on all of mankind. And, and in the verse, these verses, we see two things. We see that, that, that it's not just isolated to one nation on the earth. That's uh, very often how in the ancient Near East, that's the way they thought, that each nation, each place had its own sort of local deity. But God is not a mere local deity. His judgment stretches out to all of mankind. And we see, secondly, that, that uh, not even our most prized possessions, our dearest idols, cannot save us on that day. So in verse 17, we see the, this lens widen out. He's zoomed in on Judah. Now he's backing up to see all of the nations. And, uh, and again, when we understand that the day of the Lord here prophesied in Zephaniah... It's a, prophesy, it's a prophecy against Judah, fulfilled primarily in the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. But, but Judah serves as a, a microcosm for the entire globe. The destruction promised here against Judah illuminates the judgment God will one day bring against the entire unbelieving world. We're told that when God judges the world, He says they will, they will walk like the blind and their blood will be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. These are gruesome word pictures that we read there in verse 17. In the language of this prophecy, even it really it, it mirrors the lament that Jeremiah makes for Judah after the destruction of, of Babylon, and, or destruction of uh, Jerusalem by the Babylonians. In Lamentations 4, 11-14, we read, The Lord gave full vent to His wrath. He poured out His hot anger. He kindles a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. The Lord says at the, the, the end of verse 18 in Zephaniah 1, He says that the fire of His jealousy. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. No one, He says, can escape this judgment. Like the the postage stamp of the Egyptian president with the map of Israel burning in His hand, we see here a picture of God standing with the map of the world burning in His But unlike the human forces arrayed against Israel in 1967, the world faces a much more terrifying foe. God Almighty. And this leads us to a second consideration that not even our most prized possession can protect us on that day. In the great day of the Lord, we read, in the beginning of verse 18, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. Similarly, through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord declares in chapter 46, verses 5 to 7, he says, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and He makes it into a god. Then they fall down in worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. And it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. 
This reminds me of the events from 1 Samuel 5 that we mentioned earlier about Dagon in the Philistines. After Dagon's head and hands were chopped off, only his trunk was left. And after these things, the Lord's hand, we're told, was, was heavy against the people of Ashdod. He terrified them and afflicted them with tumors until they returned the ark to the Philistine, uh, to Israel. Dagon was no match for the Lord. And so it is with any and all of all our idols with which we can conceive. Samuel later in 1 Samuel chapter 12, he warns the people of Israel uh, not to turn aside to idols or literally to empty things for they cannot profit or deliver for they, he says, are empty. And so we need to ask ourselves, what do I trust? In whom is my trust? Where is my hope? Is it in the things of earth? Is it in material possessions or friends or family, good looks? Whatever you can dream up cannot deliver us from the day of wrath. But this brings us to our final point in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. You see, while the Lord makes clear that our idols cannot save us, He doesn't leave us hopeless. He says in, in chapter 2, 1 to 3, to seek the Lord, to seek righteousness and humility that we may be spared on the day of His wrath. He says, gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger. Of the Lord. So far in this book, we've seen nothing but judgment and wrath. But here, at the beginning of chapter 2, we see this glimmer, this glimpse of the other side of the coin. Yes, the day will be a day of wrath, it will be a day of justice and judgment and vengeance. But so too will it be a day of mercy for those who turn to the Lord. But we were reminded again of the immediacy of this judgment. Both the judgment that was coming upon Israel and that coming upon the world. Do you see it in those verses? How often he says something to the effect of, of quickly, before the day comes, before it's too late, turn back to God. But we see that while there is an urgency here for those who, who do turn from themselves, who do turn to God, those who, unlike the hypocrites in verses 4-6 to of chapter 1, they turn and truly seek after the Lord, there is a hiding place. How? How is it that sinful people can be saved from such a deserved day as this? My friends, this is the beauty of the Gospel. You see, the God of love and wrath sent His Son to stand in our place. 
Jesus Christ was born a man, lived a sinless life under God's law, perfectly fulfilling that law in thought, word, and deed. Never sinning, even once. And by doing so, He earned a a positive righteousness that He gives in exchange for my sin. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. The implied opposite of that is that the wages of righteousness is life. And so Christ gives me His righteousness in exchange for my sin. He got the death that I deserved, and I get the life that He deserved. And this is the promise of the Gospel, that all who believe in Him shall be saved. Belief. Faith. That is what unites you to Christ and makes you a partaker of this great exchange and makes you right with God and hides you from the coming wrath. So if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, let me commend the Savior to you now. There is a day of wrath coming. A day far greater and more terrifying than the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. A day far greater and more terrifying than the than the the judgment threatened by Egypt in 1967. It's a day coming, and if you're not in Christ right now, all you have to cling to for protection are the idols of your own making, which cannot save you on the day of wrath. So would you turn from them? Would you humble yourself before God and seek Him while He may be found? Would you seek righteousness and humility? Turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. One day it will be too late. There's a day when the decree will take effect. And that day will come upon you much sooner than you think. And so I I urge you to flee from the wrath to come. Flee into the arms of the Savior. And friends, for those of us who who have believed on Christ, consider what He endured that you might be saved. Jesus, who for our sake suffered this distress and anguish in His soul as He was forsaken by God. Jesus, whose body was ruined and devastated through scourging, through thorns beaten into His head, nails pierced through His wrist and feet, and a spear driven through His side. Jesus, who for our sake suffered in utter darkness in the garden and on the cross, who cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken by God and bore the full wrath of the Almighty that words can barely describe. So that you in me, so that sinners like us might be embraced by Him. 